today I will be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along with me as I read. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is God's word. In, uh, in the Gospels, um, uh, in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, there's a story that's recorded of Jesus going and uh, taking a few of his disciples up uh, to a mountain to pray. And while he was there, the rest of his disciples were down in the valley carrying on the ministry that Jesus gave them to do. And uh, the ministry that Jesus gave them to do was to um, heal the sick and cast out demons. And they were doing that, and they were doing that with a lot of success. Uh, but when Jesus comes down off the mountain, there's a great commotion because uh, there's a, a man who brought his son to the disciples that were, that were um, doing the, the work of uh, healing the sick and casting out demons, and they couldn't heal uh, this boy who had a demon, a pretty intense demon, actually. And there was this commotion because uh, there was like all this blame game going on where the Pharisees and the scribes were like, see, you don't really have power and authority, and the dad was like, I thought you did this sort of thing. And the son who keeps manifesting these, this demonic stuff, and it's just really huge commotion. And Jesus comes down, and he's like, what's going on? And they explained to him, the dad said, I brought my son to you and, uh, because he has a demon, but they can't do anything about it. Jesus says, you know, there's something about unbelief there going on. And then he casts out the demon. And the boy lays there as if he's dead. And Jesus grabs him by the hand and picks him up, and he's well. And he, they go on their way. And the story continues, but... Um, I'm so glad that the writers of the Gospels know kind of what we're thinking as we're reading because we're all going, why couldn't they do it? So as they're walking back, the disciples are like, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus says this in Mark 9, 29. This kind can only come out by prayer. And some translations say, and fasting. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Which is to say that there are different kinds of demons, there's demons that have more dominion than other demons. There are some demons that are harder to remove than other demons. There are some that are more stubborn and even more powerful. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Ephesus, says in Ephesians 6.12, he says, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. See, our, our, our fight is never with um, a different a people group, a different religion, a uh, different ethnicity, um, a different company, a uh, different political party. It's never, it's never really with uh, flesh and blood, with other people. Actually, it's against evil rulers, that's a kind, 
authorities of the unseen realm, another kind, against the mighty powers of this dark world, another kind, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places, another kind. Here Paul names different kinds of demonic powers that Jesus seems to be referring to in Mark chapter 9, saying that the real struggle, the real conflict lies there in the unseen realm. Now, we're in a series about this unseen realm. Now, I know that I am speaking to people in this room who are very rational. I know that you are very rational, that a lot of you are very, very educated and materialistic. Now, I don't mean that in the, like, the Madonna sense, like a material girl in a material world sort of thing. I mean that in like a, we believe in science and what we can see and observe sense, like materiality. We, we believe in what we can see and observe. We, we believe in the material. So when I talk about demons and the unseen powers that have influence on our world, many of you might roll your eyes. Like, oh my gosh, here we go. Church, this is so funny. Um, or maybe you may not. You may not roll your eyes. You might be spiritual in San Francisco. You're like, I'm open to anything. I live in San Francisco. <laughs> but what you actually may be doing is waiting until I make some tie-in on how these powers that are talked about in the Bible are really the way we humans systematize oppression or hate or war. Basically, waiting, wanting someone like me to use rationalistic naturalism to replace the supernatural tones of the passage with explainable human categories. That's what you're waiting for. You're like, tell me this is an ism. Tell me this is the way that humans do this thing with systems, or tell, tell, show me the like, family systems involved in this, or something like that. Do, give me explainable human categories. But what if Jesus meant, and what Paul was talking about here were not just symbolic language of a superstitious yesteryear, but what, was, what they're talking about is actual reality. This is what reality is like here and now. I mean, Jesus ends up saying and teaching us in his great model prayer, he ends the model prayer by saying, and pray like this, and lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from the evil one. So not only am I positing to you that what the scriptures talk about when they talk about the unseen world is something very real, but I would also like to suggest that by naming and reclaiming a biblical vision of reality, it also helps you to comprehend types of experiences that materialism renders mute and inexpressible. Meaning, we have experience of the unseen realm, almost every single one of us does, I would say every single one of us does, and probably often, but we miss their meaning because we don't have categories for them. We don't know what they mean. Clive Staples Lewis, or as you know him, C.S. Lewis, has a, an essay entitled, Is Theology Poetry? It's a great essay, great little essay. And he ends the essay by talking about the scope of Christian, if you don't know, he was, a, he was um, atheist before he was a Christian. He, was, he, he did not believe in Christianity, he thought it was silly. And then he came, slowly came to faith. And he writes this thing, he says, he talks about the scope of Christianity as compared to the rationalistic and materialistic universe or worldviews. He says this. This is how I distinguish dreaming and waking. When I'm awake, I can in some degree account for and study my dream. 
I have a thing with my daughter every single morning. I'm like, what'd you dream about? And she tells me what she dreams about. It's really cool. We analyze the dream and stuff like that. Not like super analyze it, but typically like this morning she's like, I had a dream that you and mommy were cuddling me. I'm like, that's a good dream. You know what that means? We love you. So, <laughs> so in some degree, you can, I can account and study my dream. See, he said, the dragon that pursued me last night can be fitted into my waking world. He goes, I can understand that dragon who, who pursued me last night. I know that there are such things as dreams. I was dreaming. I know that I had eaten an indigestible dinner. I know I had something hard to digest last night, which probably counts for some of it. And I know that a man of my reading, he, he studied mythology, might be expected to dream of dragons. I read about dragons all the time in myths. But while in the nightmare, I could not have fitted in my waking experience, the waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific point of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Why? Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even really science itself. He explains that in his essay. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. See, the Christian worldview has space for not just the hard and soft sciences, it does, not just technology, it does, but also it has, has room for the experiences of the supernatural and the experiences that we find almost impossible to explain with any other language of late modernity. Today, I wanna to talk about what the Bible calls our three great enemies in biblical language, in unseen realm language. And they're all right here in our reading from Ephesians chapter two. And this category that I'll try to build for you today can be labeled spiritual conflict or spiritual warfare, whatever you prefer. And it's my hope to bring some of you from sleeping world with regards to spiritual conflict to the waking world. So the three enemies. Look at Ephesians chapter two in your, uh, in your Bibles if you have them open. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed, here it is, the ways of this world, enemy one, the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, enemy two, the spirit that who is now at work of those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, enemy three, and following its desires and thoughts. These three great enemies, known as the world, the flesh, and the devil, or the world, the flesh, or sin, and the evil one, historically, Christian, Christian history says that these are the three great enemies of our souls. So I want to build these out a bit to explain what we're talking about and then tie them all together at the end. So let's take them one at a time and explain what, what does the Bible mean when it talks about these three enemies. So first, the world. The world is our enemy. Now, the world here in, in uh, Ephesians 2 isn't talking about the beautiful world of nature and its intricacies, not like waterfalls or sunny San Francisco days like we had yesterday and the day before, right? Which was glorious until your house wouldn't cool off. Other than that, it was awesome. Or like the snow-capped Alps. It's not like, it's not talking about the beautiful world and all of its beauty and intricacy. It's not, it's not talking about that. 
When the Bible speaks of the world, here and other places, it's speaking of the systems and practices in our world that are out of sync with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in its order, in its beauty, in its shalom, its peace, the world system, the world, is out of sync with those in all kinds of different ways. It's out of sync in it with its spiritualities that it promotes, it's, it's it, the ways that it, the scientific worldview that, that wants you to take it as a religion. Like all of these different, there's all sorts of ways and they don't, they don't all agree. But all these ways are, are like out of sync with the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard, the um, philosopher from, um, uh, from Southern California, uh, defined the world like this. He said, the world um, is our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Now again, that might be a bit too religious for you. If you're kind of new to our church, you're like, this is all very religious language and I don't really understand what you're talking about. Well, let me, let me quote to you uh, Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed. I think when the, the year it came out, it was on like Obama's favorite like book of the year list or something like that. Um, which is interesting, um, and he says, it's interesting that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a proclaimed you know, liberal, and Why Liberalism Felt is one of my favorite books. So he, in here, he talks about, Patrick Dean talks about the social crisis of modern America, but it's a very good way of explaining what the Bible is trying to get at when it speaks about the world. He says this quote, in this world, gratitude to the past and obligations to the future are replaced by a nearly universal pursuit of immediate gratification. Culture, rather than imparting the wisdom and experience of the past as to cultivate virtues of self-restraint and civility becomes synonymous with hedonistic uh, titillation, visceral crudeness, and distraction, all oriented toward promoting consumption, appetite, and detachment. As a result, superficially self-maximizing Socially destructive behaviors begin to dominate society. If you were to describe what is going on in our world, both in person, IRL, and online, and if you keep that quote back up there real quick, and if, I, if you said that, if you just walked around and, like, and you read that, you're like, oh yeah, that, that's it, right there, that. What is that? What is that? And some people might say, oh, it's so many different things. It's so many ways that, you know, the cell phone and, and before the cell phone, this never happened. Oh, uh, no, this stuff happened before cell phone. This stuff happened with, like, regular phones that connected to the wall, okay? This kind of stuff always happened, right? This is civilization. This is the world. We just invent new and shiny ways of doing it over and over again. The Bible says it's the world, and the world and its systems sweep all of us, myself included, into its orbit all the time. Its gravitational pull seems almost impossible to resist. There are ways that you can buffet that. There are ways that you could discipline your life that orient it in a different way, but it's, it takes so much effort to do so. It becomes this, the world becomes like the water we swim in. We don't even recognize it as water anymore. It is just life. The scriptures describe the world as an enemy that is bent on human destruction, something we must be in conflict with always, something that pull against our peace and our joy, our wholeness, and our contentment. Now, there are times we get glimpses of its chaos and its insanity, 
There's times, maybe even right now, you get this like, or when you wake up a little earlier than you're supposed to wake up, and you don't actually go for your phone for the first uh, 15 minutes of the day, and you spend time in quiet, or you spend time reading the Bible, or you spend time journaling, or you spend time meditating, and you get this glimpse of like, this world is crazy. Why do I get so caught up into it, and then the next thing you know, you're back into it again? Like, how did I get here? That thing. The world. We're swept away again and again. Okay, that's one enemy. The next enemy is the flesh or sin. Now, when the Bible talks about the flesh or our sinful nature, it's not saying that we can never, humans can never do anything good or beautiful. Like, we can't selflessly love our children or start nonprofits that bring aid to the most war-torn places on the planet. We all, since we're made in the image of God, have great potential to do beautiful things, okay? But the flesh is always there. No matter what we do that is beautiful, good, or true, there is always a pull, a temptation to want to ask ourselves, what's in it for me? How will this make me happy? How will this align with what I want in life? So when Ephesians 2.3 says gratifying the cravings of our flesh, it means the primal animalistic drive and cravings of our body, our body for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sens sensuality. Sensuality meaning the appetite for sex or the appetite for food. Just like feeding and, and like um, feeding our flesh, feeding the, the, the animalistic desires that we have all the time. Or it's the pleasure principle, like you live for maximum pleasure. There was a time in my life, honestly, I'm an um, Enneagram 7, so that explains, might explain a lot for you right now. Um, there was a time in my life before uh, I, I um, one of my spiritual mentors is Ronald Rollheiser, and I, I've never met him, just on paper, um, read all his books. Uh, he talks about breaking the pleasure principle. And I read this in my, like, my mid-30s. And I remember once he was talking about breaking the pleasure principle that I would, throughout my 20s and maybe early 30s, I would wake up in the morning and my first thought was, what's gonna bring me pleasure today? Where am I gonna eat for lunch? What am I gonna look at? Where am I gonna go? What's gonna bring me maximum, I'm a seven, like an Enneagram seven, so I'm like always about no pain, all fun, right? That's, that's how I see life. And so I would, I would wake up like feeding the pleasure principle until um, Rollheiser helped me to learn how to break this thing, where honestly, I, don't, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Like, I, I don't wake up thinking, you know, what's gonna bring me maximum pleasure? Um, I, I usually wake up, oh, what the, where, who am I? Um, that sort of thing, but <laughs> I think that's age. Um, so, I, our, our instincts, um, the flesh is like our instincts for survival, like our, 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 like our, our instincts for domination, our need for control. Those are the, that's the flesh. We all, all of us um, uh, have this in us. Like the Bible says, it, it, we all like live to gratify the flesh at some level. But here's the thing. We, li we live in a humanistic society and the messaging that we get from the world is that this all should be embraced. So no longer is, is, does culture teach you to 
live virtuously and buffet those natural animalistic desires that you have, actually quite opposite. You're supposed to embrace them, and to not embrace them would be really repressive. And so we live in this, in this society that says you need to embrace all of your cravings, all of your appetites, all of your instincts, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. That's the only law, don't harm anyone. But do what you, do you, you do you. Now you may be thinking, well why not? Why does the Bible or God call this sin? Why does it call, what, what is sin? What is sin? What's a de- give me a definition of sin. Um, the founder of the Jesuit order, Ignatius of Loyola, defines sin as this. This is a really good definition of sin. Again, this is like a religious definition, but here's a good definition. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is, is and this is, by the way, this is Genesis chapter three, right? An unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So when I read the, the ways that we are to live, that humans are to flourish and live, and we're like, that does not, that seems repressive. What the Bible talks about when it talks about money or sex or power, that seems repressive. This is an unwillingness to trust that actually what God has revealed about human flourishing is because he only wants your deepest happiness. Now, if that's too religious for you, let me give you um, another one. Uh, there's uh, Francis Bufford is, um, wrote this book called Unapologetic, and I find myself recommending this book more than any other book these days. When someone's like, can you recommend a book for me? And I'm like, uh, do you like crude language? I'm like, yes. I'm like, read this book. Uh, Unapologetic, and he's a Christian. A Brit- he's British, so it makes sense of the crude language. Um, and he writes very like dry and funny about why Christianity still, despite everything, this is the subtitle, despite everything, why Christianity still makes emotional sense. And he talks about um, how sin, he talks about sin, and in our society, he says that basically sin means indulgence. Sin is like enjoyable naughtiness, the pleasurable consumption of something. He says the word is hijacked in our culture. He says, if you want to make people worried, don't, don't use sin. Use a different word phrase. He says, use, um, use eating disorder. Use addiction. Use another vocabulary cloud altogether. Don't use sin anymore. But then he defines sin. And here's the line. Again, this is like PG-13, but you're down for it. Here it is. <laughs> what I and most other believers understand by the word I'm not saying to you has, has got very little to do with yummy transgression. For us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency, their human propensity to F up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to F things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency uh, to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff Stuff here including moods and promises and relationships that we care about and our own well-being and other people's as well as material objects whose high-gloss positivity seems to invite a big fat scratch. Now I hope we're we're all on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognizes this as one of the truths about themselves. It's this human propensity to F up and to F things up, he says. Again, the Bible calls this inclination that we have in our flesh, our struggle with it, it calls it spiritual conflict. We are at a, in a conflict against not just the world, but our, 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 our flesh. 
It's like in us. It's, in, it's, in our, it's like encoded into our bodies. And when we choose to deny ourselves, this is the language of Jesus, to deny ourselves and choose the way of Jesus, the way of self-giving love, to trust that God wants for me only our deepest happiness, we are actually engaging in spiritual warfare. Okay, so there's a, there's a, there's a wrestle, there's a, there's a fight there. Third one, the evil one or the devil. Now, when I say the evil one or the devil, I use that as a moniker for uh, demons and spiritual beings that are in rebellion to God. Now, we spent a whole week unpacking the three rebellions in Genesis 1 through 11. This was a few weeks ago. The garden, fall, um, the sons of God, the Elohim having sex with daughters of man um, that, that, that brought on um, an excessive, such excessive uh, transgression that God has to cleanse the earth. And then the third one being the Tower of Babel, where the Elohim are, are, are driven out and are split up across uh, the earth and given over nations. So, so interesting. Go back and listen to that um, to understand what we're talking about there. Now, these three rebellions, being both human beings and spiritual beings, resulted in these rebellious spiritual beings losing their place in God's counsel, or you can just say, for, to make it simpler, in God's heaven. And they are therefore, now some of them, on earth, leading the whole world astray. Okay, so demonic influence, that's what we're talking about. So go back and listen to the three rebellions, and like how did this all happen, happen there? So when you get to, to, to Jesus, uh, demonic influence is kind of everywhere, right? It's, it's all over Jesus' ministry. Now, demonic influence can happen in a couple of different ways. One way that uh, demonic influence can show up in your life is uh, through really intense experience, really intense. David Bennett shared a story last week of when he was in Germany uh, preaching the gospel and doing God's work, he woke up to, like, he felt like, a, like some sort of demonic presence was trying to choke him out, like, keep him from speaking and talking. And, um, and this is a, a very common thing, actually, that happens. This, this happened to me, it happened to me twice when we were starting to plant this church. When we were moved, we, I hadn't, we hadn't lived here. Actually, I hadn't moved here yet. We still lived down in um, kind of the Santa Barbara area. And we were coming up to pray in San Francisco, and I was trying to get my head around living in a city because I had never lived in a city like this. And I didn't know, like, where's Trader Joe's and where do you park and like that, you know, those like normal things? Like, where do you live and how do you live and like, where's the backyard, that sort of stuff. And so you're, we're coming up here, and, um, and I was intimidated. I was so afraid of being here. And one night, we're staying uh, on this um, hotel on Van Ness, and I woke up in the middle of the night the same thing, where I felt like um, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't get up, and I felt like this demonic presence was like, a, had its, its grasp on my throat. That's the best way I can explain it. And I remember hearing these words like, clear as day, get out of my city. Get out of here. And it, it took everything I could to like muster, you know, the name of Jesus and um, pray, did, you know, did warfare, just started praying, all that, all the stuff that I, I like, I'm so grateful that I was trained in, in planning a church, like spiritual warfare, demonology, all that stuff. So I was doing that, and then it happened again another time I was here, but it, that one came on as like a deep depression. Like, um, if you move here, you will be so depressed and you'll hate your life so much. It was that sort of feeling. Um, 
So those things are, those things are real, those like experiences. I had other experiences of people coming to look for me that were um, demonically um, charged and all this stuff too. Like these kind of things happen. Those are pretty intense though, right? Not everyone experiences this, okay? So it might happen, it might not. Um, and there's always power in the name of Jesus, by the way, just so you know. Just tie that off real quick. You're like, what do I do? Jesus, just Jesus, okay? Okay. But there's another way that demonic influence happens, and this one's more subtle. Um, this one happens uh, through the intellect. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 2, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, uh, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. Deceiving spirits. And things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciousness have been seared as with a hot iron. So demonic influence not just happens through like intensity and dreams and like strangling and like this is so intense. You're like, you know, that's a demon. But here's another way. They're like, is that a demon? It's so subtle. It, it happens through doctrine, through intellect. It happens through certain doctrines slipping into the church, certain doctrines slipping into your life, certain things that you believe, subtle little lies that you believe that were, are, have actually been taught to you by deceiving spirits and taught by demons. That's insane and scary. That's the, I think that's one of the most scariest ones because we kind of base our life on ideas. We base our lives on like how we think about things. That's how a lot of us basically, like, how do you think about that? And if, and if, if the demonic can influence your thinking and your belief and then lead you astray, I've seen, I, by the way, I've seen it happen a lot. Now, let me just make matters a little bit worse. <laughs> the world, the flesh, and the devil are all layered. They all work together in a concentrated effort to turn us from God and thus from joy and peace. It's not just one day we're fighting the flesh, and like on Tuesday, you're going to fight the devil. Okay, I'm going to, get, I'm going to, I'm going to okay, Tuesday, devil. And then on Thursday, you're going, to, you're going to fight the world. No, all of it, all the time. It's just, and they're all commingled. This is Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 2. Look at, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, okay, the ways of the world there, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working, those are disobedient. So you're following the ways of the world, but also the spirit of the air, the, 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 like, the, the like demonic forces. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying at that same time as you're doing this cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. It's all layered. So the way the New Testament says it, you are either, basically, as you're talking about the spiritual conflict, you are either um, in darkness and under the power uh, the, the, the Bible uses the word slavery. I think that's a really important word. Uh, under the slavery of sin and the world and the devil. Or you're in the kingdom of the beloved son. There is no neutral space. You are in one or the other. 1 John 3, 8 says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. So this is like the person who is habitually living in sin, doesn't even know they're in sin. They're just like, this is, this is life. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And listen, this is like the key. The reason Jesus appeared, the Son of God, the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus showed up on this earth, God in flesh, to go after Satan, 
to deliver us from this kingdom of darkness and pull us into the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus appeared to go after darkness, those who are enslaved, literally enslaved by sin and the world and the devil, which is why when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, it's a change of place from one place to another place, not just place, but allegiance. Your allegiance goes from being, I'm aligned and agree with flesh, sin, and the devil, to now I'm aligned. This is what baptism is so important. Baptism is a allegiance. It's a vow. It's like when you make a vow to get married, you are, you're pledging an allegiance to your spouse. I vow now to you. I, this is why you don't face the, the, um, the congregation or the, the witnesses. You, you turn your back on them because it's like among all these other people, I choose you. I pledge my life to you. Baptism is a very similar thing where you're pledging your allegiance to Jesus, I serve Jesus. I'm no longer in this, in this camp, I'm in this camp, okay? So this is what happens, Colossians 1.13. For he has, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us, this is place, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're delivered from the demonic, we're delivered from the world, we're delivered from the flesh, we're forgiven and we're brought into this now kingdom of the Son, which is why there are so many demonic deliverances and exorcisms in the gospel. Jesus shows up and there's demons everywhere. Why are there demons everywhere? First of all, they're threatened. Second of all, Jesus wants the demons to show themselves so he can deal with them. Demons love to stay hidden. They just love to stay. They love to hide because then you don't know they're there at all. But Jesus shows up and these demons are manifesting and he starts casting them out. Why? Because Jesus is moving people from the bondage of the demonic and the world and the flesh to the kingdom of the beloved son. So if you're tracking so far, we're in a war. There's a cosmic battle that we're all a part of, one where there's the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil that are hell-bent on our destruction. But Jesus comes to reveal the kingdom of God and to bring all of us into it through baptism, we switch allegiances. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light where we're all good, right? No, that's not the end of the story. So you think the end of the story is, okay, this is great. I was in darkness, now I'm in light, and now I'm all good, and now life is easy, now I have peace, and now I have joy, and it's so much easier being a Christian. No. <laughs> not at all. It was almost easier to be here because you didn't, there was no, there was no struggle. The person who struggles, I think, um, this might have been another C.S. Lewis, the, the, the person who struggles the most is not the one, the one who's trying to stand up against the wind. That's a struggle. If you're just giving into it and you're just going downstream, you're like, that's not a struggle, that's easy. You're just floating down the river, that's easy. Just grab your, you know, like your, your raft and your, your, your favorite beverage and you're like, that's easy. You know what's hard? Like walking up the river while the current's against you. Like this is so hard, yes. Because now you're not, you're, not, you're not going with it. You're going against it. Okay, so this might theologically explain a lot, but it might not explain the experiences that we have as followers of Jesus. Of Like, what about when you're a Christian, but you're, you continue to be addicted or distracted or in sin or brokenness or bitterness or unforgiveness? Like, we cling to those things, and they cling to us, like, how do we explain that? The feeling of still feeling bound even though we're free. 
Now, I want to explain that really quick because I think this is where things get serious. And explain that, I want to talk about Dua Lipa. Uh, Dua Lipa, I don't, I'm not really into Dua Lipa's music um, at all. Um, and uh, I mean, it's fun and all that other stuff, but uh, I never really liked her music. But you know who I really am into? I'm mean, I really into, into the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers because uh, I've been in them since like high school. So they came out when I was in high school. I love them. Now, of course, the YouTube algorithm knows uh, Dave likes Chili Peppers, does not like Dua Lipa, but watch this. And so, of course, up pops my feed of Chad Smith, the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, playing Break My Heart by Dua Lipa. And I'm like, oh, all right, I can get into this. Come to find out, he actually played the drums on that track. And I'm like, so into it. I've watched the video like 30 times. I don't know, I don't know, something like that. Now, I'm like, now, because of Chad Smith playing the drums on this song, I'm like into Dua Lipa's music now. This is called a gateway, <laughs> right? We call this gateway. This is literally a gateway. Like I was like, I'm not into this, I'm into that, I'm into that and this, oh look at it, and now I'm over here. Like how did I get here? I, I'm ashamed over here, I'm here, and I don't wanna be here, but I'm somehow here. And now it's on my like, workout playlist and it's really bad, okay? <laughs> now when we speak of gateways, what we're, what we're saying is there was something that was, something that was allowed that allowed something else into our lives, right? Now, we, we say this about drugs, we say this about music, habits, whatever. Like, we say this about all kinds of things, gateways. Now, keep that, that in mind as I read this. Ephesians, again, Ephesians is all about this, like, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done, but also the, the current spiritual battle that we, that we remain in. He says, therefore, and he's talking about habitual sin, and he's talking to the church because Ephesians is a, a, a letter written to the church. He's not talking about non-Christians. He's talking about the church. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We're all Christians. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold. Now, the, the, the word foothold is a spatial word. It's uh, topos in Greek. It's, um, it means a spot. It means locality, location, region, place. It's like a place. It's like a gateway. It's not like he grabs your foot and he's like going to like, it's, it's more of a spatial thing. It's like if you had a house, now the house is transferred ownership. It's no longer owned by Satan. It's owned by God and this house, but somehow there is a bedroom window left open as a doorway, a gateway, a windowway, where the demonic has gotten in. There's uh, an article in, Airbnb, uh, in, um, in SoCal, there's an Airbnb in SoCal, I just read this last week, or this week, where there was a, a renter that someone rented to, to this person, and they're there for a long term, they're like two months, whatever, and then the lease ran out, the Airbnb thing ran out, and the person stayed, and then stayed, and then stayed, and now the person's squatting, and they've been there for like 15 months or something like that and they won't leave, and they, the, the owner can't get this person out of the guest house, and they've gone through like legal stuff, and it's, it's there, a very unfortunate situation. Now, I don't know the intricacies of the situation. I'm not calling this lady Satan, but I'm just making the analogy. Okay, here it is. <laughs> I'm saying this is, this is literally how it all works. There, the guy still owns the property, but there was gateway. There was topos given, agreement even. When we sin, we give the enemy a topos, we give a, an agreement to come and live in this space. And then what happens is they stay there 
and then you're, you're like, I, I don't know what to do with this thing. And you think, oh, no, no, the Holy Spirit will just kick that, that, that out. Not always. You've made the agreement with, with this, this lie, this sin, this thing in your life. And you have to do the work of confessing and getting, it, getting rid of it. You have that authority in Jesus' name. Whether you use it or not is, is kind of where I want to end. Because what's been happening, what, I've had people over the last few weeks come up to me and just ask to confess something to me. Now, you would think that that happens all the time since I'm a pastor, but it actually doesn't that often. Not, 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 not here, for, you know, not, not here. You, I, th- I think that you guys think you have therapists for that, right? People are like, we have therapists to confess. We don't need a pastor to confess. But there's something happening, which I think is fine, but pastors are important too. Um, and then people's walking up, I need to confess something to you. And there's, I think what's happening is that the, uh, the, the, the Spirit of God is highlighting this in the church. Like there are, there are things that you've given the enemy topos. You've given sin, and because of sin, the, the demonic place in your life, and you need to evict them. And that happens through confession. We learn this like four-step process of confession at our Encountering God conference. Confess and then cancel any agreement that you've had due to sin and command this presence, this thing, to leave in Jesus' name and say, come Holy Spirit, fill this house. So we're gonna do that. That's how we're gonna end. So would you stand with me? I wanna invite David McKinney up. We're gonna lead you into something right now where we do this. We're gonna take a couple moments to respond like that.